for myself, our practice is very much about learning how to live. That is, it's designed to help us learn how to live. If it doesn't do that, then uh, I'm not sure we're spending our time in the best way. And this particular teaching that I'd like to reflect on tonight, the Kalama Sutta, something I talk about every year and dedicated to Krishnamurti, who was my first teacher and who, along with my father, got me launched on understanding how important freedom is. And I, I think that if, we're, if Buddhism was not infused with the spirit that this sutra, I hope, will convey before we're done, I don't think I would be in any particular tradition or religion or have a meditative practice because the doors were all shut to the other ones. I mean, I closed them. I just didn't feel I could go near them. And the reason I could to this particular approach is because in this sutra, sometimes entitled the Charter of, Charter of Freedom of Inquiry, the Buddha not simply invites us to test everything that he says. It's much stronger than that. That's the only way you can really do what he's talking about, is to test what he says. If you say, I believe in emptiness, I believe in anatta, I believe in dukkha and anicca and impermanence, I think the Buddha would probably say, that's it. In other words, what's conveyed is that simply believing something is not a precondition for mental well-being and happiness. And yet we know that sometimes whether you believe or don't believe can be a matter of life and death. If you're a non-believer, the history of religions, all of them, uh, the track record is not so great. There's been a lot of human cruelty uh, that has been spurred on by ferocious beliefs in this, that, and the other. Uh, in order to, I think it, it may take more than an evening, I'm not sure. Let's see how much we cover tonight. Um, in order to do it justice, I'd like to go into my own personal background a little bit, mainly growing up. Um, this is not, I'm not Vipassana's answer to Ramdas. A kind of a poor man's Ramdas. <laughs> I hope that in referring to some of these personal experiences, although some of them may seem unique or in one sense different than your own, it wouldn't surprise me if many of us have something like this in common. Uh, perhaps not such fulfilling experiences in very authoritarian approaches to religion or spirituality. And also, whether we've gotten it through science or through family values or both, um, I would a, a tremendous emphasis on being able to question. I think it's also uh, very much part of, the, of our culture. Uh, in New England, this kind of down-to-earth 
no nonsense in the Midwest. It's, uh, where is it, in St. Louis, show me. I'm from Missouri. Uh, if I had a subtitle or re-entitled re this sutra, I'd call it the, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating sutra. Maybe you'll see that as we move on. Um, part of why I'd like to mention a few uh, examples from my own childhood is uh, perhaps to explain uh, a bias I might have. Maybe I'm overly enthusiastic about this teaching and uh, then you can see that. But a lot of it is uh, to emphasize the importance of this particular teaching. I personally feel that the Kalama Sutta, uh, which is not very long, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya 3, I think 35, if anyone wants it, we can get the exact, I think, I think that's it. I think it's one of the most important human documents in human culture. Uh, that this small uh, exchange between the Buddha and these people called the Kalamas uh, is making a statement about the human condition and about truth and about the quality of life that's rare. And that it happened thousands of years ago is even more astonishing. But then again, as you'll see, the Buddha warns us just because something is old doesn't mean it's true. So I take that back but it also doesn't mean it's false. Uh, my own upbringing, uh, the, the aspect that's significant here was a relationship to Orthodox Judaism. And by the way, uh, sometimes what I'm about to say has been, or have said, is taken to be an attack on other religions. I don't know much about other religions. I know a little bit about the religion I was brought up into and one rabbi who, had the, who colored everything. And I honestly don't mean it to discredit other religions. Uh, it's just that I feel that what I've learned here is extraordinary and necessary for me, or I couldn't have gotten to work. At any rate, uh, on the one hand, it was a, an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, the rabbi was just over from Poland. Uh, he was totally confused. He inherited uh, just all these what he, wild animals were, <laughs> were referred to. <laughs> it's not really that we were so wild. We were trying to learn how to be Americans. And uh, so we would have one foot in the synagogue and the other foot in the movie theater watching uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Jimmy Stewart trying to learn how to, how to be an American. And the poor guy had a really hard time. At any rate, uh, the backdrop to this is my, my father uh, comes from 14 generations of rabbis uh, and uh, his father rejected it all. Rejection is a weak term. I mean, just, and, and passed it on to my father who seemed to do even more of a number on it as uh, constantly pointing out all of the flaws in religion and uh, taking me around to the Catholic Church and point out Look at the priest. Look how well-fed and fat he is. <laughs> and now look at the parishioners. No money for their own clothes or to educate their children. Um, so I would be going to Hebrew school because I did it for my grandparents and my mother and my father said, just do it, get it over with. At 13, you'll be free. It's exactly what happened. <laughs> I haven't been back since I was 13. 
And he would coach me. I'd go to Hebrew school after regular school. We had, in addition to just regular school that every child went to, uh, we couldn't play basketball and baseball immediately, which is what we wanted to do. We had to go for another hour and a half to two hours, and if we were bad, it was longer, uh, to Hebrew school. And my father would say things like, ask the rabbi just how did Moses get that river to, to split? How would it? <laughs> so I'd go, um, <laughs> Rabbi Minkowitz, how did Moses get the river, you know? And he didn't even have to ask me a question. Immediately punished me upstairs. And Jewish punishment is you have to read more books. <laughs> so in addition, to, in addition to the hefty reading we had, he would add another thousand pages, but no one did it. We would just go upstairs and look at baseball cards. And then, and then when we felt enough time went by, we'd come back and had a slightly mournful look, and he would look at us and say, okay, join the class. Um, so I couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh, and growing up with my father, well, you already have an inkling, but I think it's the only time in recorded history, maybe there is another, but I, I'd be amazed if there were. When my bar mitzvah came up, my father paid the rabbi to not give a talk. <laughs> the, tr <laughs> the tradition is you give a talk after the ceremony is over and it's very praiseworthy about how what a wonderful child has just entered the manhood and is now becoming part of Judea and so forth. And my father said, please, here's the money, don't give a talk. But he gave a talk anyway. <laughs> and my father was fuming. At any rate, uh, my father had a way of teaching that I didn't realize it at the time, but was uh, very similar to some of the things when we get to the sutta itself, if we ever get there, uh, <laughs> that was preparing me. But I think it, some of it is in some ways similar to the scientific approach, which is in our culture. Um, if I got into trouble, usually I was very good at home, but got into a lot of trouble outside of home, in school and in the neighborhood. Not criminal, but mischief. And my father would come home from work, and he'd always wanted to be a, a lawyer, really a judge, but he was a taxi cab driver, so he had to settle for a court made, of my, made up of my mother and myself. And I would be tried. <laughs> but it was an extraordinary way of trying, because it was very, very sensitive and reasonable. He would hear the, the accused out, and uh, and... Sometimes he would drop the sentence, and of course my mother would smile, and they were happy that I got off. Uh, but he would always explain to me why I shouldn't have done that. When you didn't do that, your Aunt Clara got aggravated, then she called up your mother, and now I got to listen to all it. You know, <laughs> if you just pick up some rye bread and four bagels and come home, and it's simple. You know. But he would always explain these things to me, and we, he would read from uh, Krilov's it's similar to Aesop's Fables. It's a Russian uh, book with animal stories that really are about us and wisdom. Uh, and instilled in me the right to ask questions about anything and everything. So I, that is, it was that kind of a little court of law in the living room. Only once in the entire time I grew up did he violate that um, respect. And I don't know what it was, but he just had had enough of me, and he just locked me in the bathroom. The bathroom had a glass window, 
And I had never been disciplined like that. It never hit me. And I just smashed the window and climbed out, and both my parents were shaking, terrified. And so I was used to very high standards of, of freedom. Uh, my first month in the Army was a nightmare because I was put in the uh, airborne infantry, and as if that wasn't bad enough, um, you had a, there was no such thing as questioning or uh, giving your point of view or... <laughs> Uh, you know, you've all seen the movies. They're true. That's what goes on. And some of the people doing it, uh, they enjoy it. At any rate, uh, first month, there were many times I would just run behind a, a barracks to just, I would feel stars. I was just so furious and angry because you had no point of view. You just did what you were told, and it was simple. And if it seemed stupid, too bad. Just do it anyway. And if you could think of a better way, keep it to yourself and just shut up. And so I learned, of course, and that was part of learning, as all of us, I imagine, do, since you know, we're reasonably adjusted, is that there are times when you have the rights and there are times when you don't. This is another kind of training my father would give me, and I think you'll see it's close to what the Buddha did. I may be romanticizing my father, but I think there's some truth in it. Um, at the time, some of the young kids were starting to drink. They were slightly older than me. And Jews, by and large, at least that generation, were not, did not drink. There were n virtually no alcoholics. We would kind of eat ourselves into oblivion. <laughs> so, but he wanted to make sure. And he checked in many things, gambling, drinking, and other things that I won't talk, go into. And the way he did it is he took me for my first drink. I was a year underage, but he went into the bar with me. I said, all right, here, here it is. Here's what they make such a fuss over. And I had a rye, a scotch, and I downed it. And it was awful. And he said, see, this is it. This is what they... That wasn't enough. So he showed me that this is what they make such a big deal of. Then he drove me to the Bowery, and I don't know New York anymore, but in those days, it was like Skid Row, just a lot of people who were really very, very uh, uh, damaged, destroyed by alcohol. You know, just uh, horrible uh, outcomes of, 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 of human uh, sorrow. And he would show me that. See, this is what happens if you overdo, if you drink it. So he was giving me this cause and effect, cause and effect stuff. And he did that a lot. Um, now we come to the Kalama Sutta. The Buddha comes into this town, and the town is uh, sounds very much like Cambridge. And for years, I was reading it, hearing this sounds like Cambridge uh, in certain ways. The people were very inquiring, from what the commentaries say. They were also uh, relatively prosperous. They had enough to eat and everything. And quite alive to spiritual matters. But they were uh, overrun with teachers and teachings. And this is the part where, where Cambridge comes in. <laughs> you know, if you look at a bulletin board in Cambridge, there's just one smiling face pasted on top of another. Uh, the oldest method, the, the most direct method, the perfect... Uh, you know, it goes on and on. 
and centers growing up like mushrooms. We've contributed to it. There's one in Cambridge. Uh, and just a tremendous uh, amount, a number of teachings, all competing for your interests. And that's just Buddhism alone, and it's way beyond Buddhism. There are all kinds of things. But I now realize it's no longer just Cambridge. It's the world, with internet and the publica publication of books and videos and tapes. Um, you're interested in Buddhism? What kind? What flavor would you like? Tibetan Buddhism? Okay, we have about 10 flavors there. Uh, Theravadan Buddhism? Oh, you've tried that? A little too dry for you? <laughs> All this talk about dukkha and suffering and impermanence, and you prefer sort of uh, Dzogchen, you know, the innate perfection of the mind. Sounds much better, actually. <laughs> and they have colorful outfits. <laughs> and, and most of the teachers of Vipassana aren't Asian and not, not even monks. They just wear sweatpants and, you know, <laughs> uh, at least the Tibetan teachers look like teachers, you know. And then you get to Zen. Oh, wow, beautiful. These great stories that teach you and make you laugh and zing right in there. Theravadan goes on and on. You know, Zen is just one-liners, you know, and just they <laughs> knock your socks off. Uh, confusion. And just before we started the Cambridge uh, Insight Meditation Center, some friends arranged, uh, I think it's called an audience, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And so we spoke for some time. And my question to him was, how do you maintain, we're about to start a center, how do you maintain coherence in a town like Cambridge, which has just so much information and enthusiasm? and living representatives, all of whom are maintaining that they have something that's great. And if, if those of you, probably everyone has seen the Dalai Lama by now, and he massages his scalp and kind of pretends he doesn't know what's going on, <laughs> mumbles a little, and then as if uh, awkwardly, oh yeah, oh yeah, I just thought of something. And what he said was, it's easy, no problem, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, all Buddhist schools uh, subscribe to the Four Noble Truths. If they don't, it's not the Buddhist teaching. One may emphasize the first more than the others or the third, but if you ground your center in the Four Noble Truths, you can see where people are when they come in, those who have had other practices and those who don't. And it'll help keep everything coherent, and we've done that. The Four Noble Truths are a more developed statement of what the Buddha presents in a very rudimentary way in the Kalama Sutta. Before we get to that, for those of you who have not read much of, of the teachings of the Buddha and don't have much of a sense of him as a teacher, to give you some background, uh, and that I hope will be reinforced when you hear how he conducted himself in this particular exchange, The Buddha put a tremendous premium on taking responsibility for our own happiness or the lack thereof. So there was, there was definitely teachings, uh, detailed, thorough teachings and techniques and methods and so forth. But finally, the ball was always thrown back to you. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a light unto yourself. When he was dying, 
very touching time. It, I, it must have been the way it's described. He was very close to death, and he said, okay, this is it. I'm not going to be here soon. Uh, if you have any questions, this is the time to ask it. Uh, I'm going to be dying soon. And no one asked anything. And he thought, well, maybe they're being polite or respectful because he's dying uh, or they're shy. And so he said, look, if it's out of respect for me that you're not asking questions, tell someone else to ask the question on your behalf so I won't know who asked it. But, you know, for goodness sakes, if you have a question, ask it. So you can see uh, the premium he put on us. That is, we have to work, too. It's not something that... Uh, it's laid out and you just uh, go through the motions like a drill. Here's uh, an exchange. There are many more throughout the suttas, but here's one that um, with Ananda, a very important close disciple of the Buddha. Ananda said to the Buddha, I think there has never been a teacher as great as you, nor will there ever be one as great in the future. The Buddha asked, have you known all the awakened ones, the Buddhas of the past? No, honored one. And are you able to know all the Buddhas of the future? <laughs> no, honored one. Then I suppose you do know this awakened one's mind completely, meaning him. No, honored one, I do not even know your mind completely. Then how can you make such a bold statement? It is better to talk of what you know than to speculate foolishly. So... Honesty, uh, being real, is, uh, runs throughout all of the teachings. It's, uh, that's just one example. Let's get started. I'm going to read to you a bit from the sutta, not the entire sutta, but I, the parts that I think are helpful. Some of this may seem remote right now to what does this have to do with retreat life? But I hope that by, time, by the time we're done, uh, you'll see that it has everything to do with, with our practice. Uh, there's an introduction, which I'll skip, and then it goes. This is from the sutta itself. So, the Kalyamas of Kesaputta approached the Bhagavan, that's the Buddha, the exalted one. Having approached him, some prostrated towards the Bhagavan and sat down at one side. Some greeted him politely and having conversed in a friendly and courteous, courteous way, sat down to one side. Some raising their joined palms sat down to another side. Some called out their names and those of their clan and sat down to, to, us, to uh, one side. While others saying nothing sat down to one side. So seated, the Kalyamas of Kasaputta said this to the Buddha. Lord, Certain teachers come to Kasaputta. As to their own doctrine, they illustrate and illuminate it in full. But as to the doctrine of others, they abuse it, revile it, deprecate it, and pull it to pieces. Moreover, Lord, yet other teachers on coming to Kasaputta do the same thing. When we listen to them, Lord, we have doubt and uncertainty as to which of these revered teachers is speaking truth and which speaks falsehood. Yes, Kalamas, you may well doubt, says the Buddha. You, you may well be uncertain. In a doubtful matter, uncertainty, uncertainty does arise. Now, the, the 
Kalama seemed overwhelmed by all of these demands for exclusive truth, the exclusive property rights to the truth. Um, and the Buddha was well known to them. It was not just any old person who wandered in. He already had quite a reputation. And when he came in, they were saying, now it's you, and you're, you're going to do the same thing. We, we keep going through this, teacher after teacher. And in that sense, it's admirable of them, that is, they don't want someone to just say, this is the onlyest way, and annihilate every other teachings. Now, pause for a moment, and here's where I think you might understand some of the uniqueness of these people. Uh, if you think that everyone in the world would share that, I think you may be wrong. The history of the world shows that people are attracted to people who come in with a strong teaching and say, boom, 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 this is it and everyone else is a jerk. Even just in contemporary politics, I mean, I haven't heard it in a few days, but I assume it hasn't changed. The candidates for years now are saying, no negative campaigning, we don't do that, I'm a good person, the other person's a schmuck, I don't... Uh, and then they find out that if you do negative campaignings, your ratings go up, and then it starts again. So apparently, and people say they don't like negative campaigning, but then when they evaluate the candidates, it seems as if we like a strong statement that kind of clears away everything else, and this is who it is. And it can be a teacher, and it can be a spiritual teacher, it can be a Dharma teacher. Implying it or directly saying it, it can be Adolf Hitler or Stalin. There are plenty of followers who don't want freedom, apparently, and haven't wanted ever to be free, to be given the right to question, to examine, and to go back and forth on this. So this is not, because we live in this country, we might think that this is just the way it is everywhere. I don't think it's so. This document uh, is, in some ways, quite unique. We've seen the abuse of this, even within spiritual circles. And also, I do want to make this something that's relevant for us as, as yogis. It's not about uh, the columnists, finally. It's about us practicing here at IMS. Uh, do we want freedom? If we're given it, can we handle it? Or would we rather just have some teacher who's so impressive that we can uh, drop our, the living, leave the living to him or her, and project onto them all the most extraordinary fantasies and make them into something unbeatable who has unique control over the truth and who then we can identify with, uh, with this wonderful teacher over and above all the other teachers who are jerks. And what a nice feeling that is. Sometimes people will say, I'm blessed. Right. Then two years later, they don't feel so blessed when their wallet is emptier. And then all these other things start happening. So the point is, even within Buddhist circles, within Dharma circles, we can be pretty stupid. And we know that. Uh, I've seen it myself, and perhaps you did. Those of us who were the first generation, I mean, I've done it. Uh, we broke out of a lot of things. This is the 60s. 
and we were very, very hung after a lot of you know, political demonstration, drugs, and then came a hunger for some kind of spiritual life, and we didn't seem to be able to go back to the religion that we were born into. And so there was a tremendous hunger to receive the teachings, and Oriental teachings uh, shone out as extraordinary, and there was, a, as we all know, history, here we are. But in those days, and I still see traces of it, I, you see Westerners uh, check their intelligence at the door and just walk around as if they have a four IQ, <laughs> groveling and say, just tell me how to live, slobbering at the mouth. And why? Because someone is Asian and a monk. And maybe you don't even know much more than that. I've been taken a few times. I don't know if you have, but I deserved it. I mean, I just wanted to have my special teacher who was, had the only way. And, uh, and I had that. And I could identify with it and feel fantastic. My spiritual life is taken care of. And it turned out to not be so, at least sometimes. There are some who stood the test, fortunately. So you see what I'm getting at. These people at least are bothered by it. They're saying, hey, we get all these arguments. We don't know what's true. But that isn't necessarily the norm. You just pick the strongest one for whatever reason. Charismatic personality, brilliance. You know, you can be brilliant and wrong. You can also be a wonderful person with tremendous character, kind and compassion, and you're wrong. What you're teaching is just wrong. So you're going to see, I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, the Buddha gives a test, and that's why I mean it's the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Okay, so he starts in. Come, Kalamas, do not make a basis for religious beliefs an authoritative tradition maintained by oral repetition, having its origin in some revelation from a god. Do not make the basis for religious beliefs an unbroken succession of teaching or of teachers. Do not make the basis uh, for religious beliefs speculative, metaphysical theories or reasons and arguments. Do not make the basis for religious beliefs a point of view, perhaps inference. Do not make the basis for religious beliefs reflecting on reasons. Do not make the basis for religious beliefs acceptance of a statement as true because it agrees with the theory of which one is already convinced. Do not make the basis for religious beliefs grounds for competence or reliability of a person. Do not make the basis for religious beliefs respect, thinking our teacher says thus and thus. Actually, this translation is by Bhikkhu Kantipalo. I'm going to read you another one, which is much shorter, but it's really the same. And this is by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and I think it'll convey more to you, and then I'll give you some of a feeling of what this is. Come, Kalamas, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing. That is simply because you hear something over and over and over again, sometimes it can start to feel as if it's true. It's not simply sometimes. The whole advertising world uses it a lot. So have you ever found you buy things you don't even need? Uh, pounds it into your head over and over and over. Same, the commercial's now becoming quite creative and very convincing. And, oh yeah, that's just a commercial. But some of it gets through. Political propaganda, anything. Over and over and over again. It can be... If, Experience, that's true. 
So do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition. Because something is old doesn't mean it's true. This is an important one. But again, let's not throw it out, because this is old, what we're teaching. And sometimes I hear myself uh, saying, uh, 2,500 years ago, isn't that amazing? The Buddha said that. Sometimes what I can hear is, what I'm doing is, establishing the Buddha's legitimacy so that I'm better. You know, like, I'm, I'm studying with this wonderful uh, teacher who's 2,500 years ago, while everyone else is walking around with clubs, you know, and leopard skins, you know, had sterling, shining wisdom, and I just happened to have fallen into it. I'm blessed. <laughs> but then again, novelty doesn't mean it's true either. We, certainly in America, we love novelty. If something's new, it catches us for a period of time, and then it's boring, and then we go on to something else that's novel. It also doesn't mean it's false, because at one point, everything was novel. It was, you know, it was new at one point. So that isn't the tell-all, that isn't the litmus paper or whatever. Be careful, in other words. It's not to throw out tradition, or even if something is said over and over, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it doesn't mean it's right. Nor upon rumor, nor upon scripture. This is a very, very big one, as you know. Uh, in religions, sometimes just quoting scripture, the argument's over. There's no argument, there's no discussion. There can be endless interpretations of what it meant. But uh, people are ready to kill uh, right now in the Middle East. I don't know what's going on now, I'm dated, but as of a few days ago, there were people who were ready to kill because uh, uh, in, it says in the book that this is our land, God gave us this land, but then the people next door, their God said the same thing. <laughs> I'm getting kind of confused. They need the, the Buddha or something. Um, but then again, scripture is one of the most precious possessions we have. But it's scripture, it's books, it's ideas. So what we're doing comes from scripture. Uh, I don't know, could you on your own come up with the Four Noble Truths? I couldn't. Maybe a think tank at Palo Alto, get the best... Uh, I don't think so. Even just the incredible beauty and precious value of following your breathing, instead of just walking around breathing, just continuously bring awareness to the breath and let everything else go and come back to it. Uh, and some of you know, I hope at some point all of us know, uh, this, just this alone, it's not even wisdom yet, uh, can make an incredible difference. It can change your life in terms of energy, peace, joy, a simple thing like that. Would you have thought of that on your own? I wouldn't have. I got it from a book. And then teachers who've been reading these books and then trying to live it. So, as you'll see, it's a very balanced teaching. The Buddha is going to rely on experience in a certain way. We may not get to that until next time. But it's not as this sutra is sometimes misquoted, or misunderstood rather, not misquoted, as being licensed to that throw out faith, throw out uh, doctrine. Uh, it's sort of, uh, if it feels right. Uh, you know, just if the inner child says it's okay. I'm waiting for some inner adults myself but anyway, to appear, anyway, inside of me. Okay. 
So it's not upon scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon axiom, nor upon spacious reasoning, nor upon bias toward a notion pondered over. Um, Logic can be very, very powerful, but there's always a premise that it's based on. If the premise is wrong, then you can have the most powerful logician in the world and come up with a deduction, which is just not true. And the reasoning can be false as well. Uh, Here, when it says something that you've pondered on over and over, just because you've worked hard on something and thought about it a lot. Let's say, I've been living with this one for a long time, and now, finally, here it is. Here's the truth. Not necessarily true. It just means you worked hard, and you came up with this. It's still, it's okay, but it's still, it's tentative. More is needed, as you'll see. Nor upon another's seeming ability. This is um, the uh, brilliance, charisma, personal qualities that blind people so that they uh, don't even care about what's true. The main thing is that they're blinded, and that's such a nice feeling. It takes their mind off them. Nor upon the consideration, this is our teacher. You know, out of love and loyalty to even the best teachers and the best meaning, most well-meaning teachers, If a teacher doesn't welcome your questions and your doubts, at least in this tradition, put your hand on your wallet and get out of there as fast as you can. Because uh, the training here is is to respect questioning. And admittedly, sometimes it's a pain being on the receiving end. And I've put in my share driving teachers crazy with questions. But... um, That's important, Uh, and it's not a sign of disrespect. Questioning a a scripture doesn't mean you're disrespectful, but it's often taken that way. So what can you do? You're trapped. Okay, I'm just going to have to... I think we'll end there, except to give you a, a hint as to what's coming. I think I'm going to draw upon another teaching of the Buddha, uh, which we'll we'll go over again uh, two evenings from now, uh, to just give you a sense of things. And in and of itself, it may already help you, even if you don't hear any more of the sutra, because the retreat's going on. Maybe I can even come up with an example in two minutes. The Buddha was uh, having an exchange with his son, Rahula. And I think Rahula had lied, something of that sort, or something was off. But anyway, the the Buddha gave his son this teaching. Um, And it was, basically it had to do with asking the right question. A lot of what the Kalama Sutta is about is, where do we go for authority? What do we take as authority, uh, as true, uh, as, as... authority to, so we know how to act. We know what to do. And we've just seen a lot of things have been eliminated as the authority. It sounds like there's not much left. At any rate, the Buddha uh, gives this advice, this teaching to his son. Before you engage in a course of action, reflect on 
where you think it's going to lead you, where you think it's going to take you. The course of action is not just bodily, it can even be a mental event. If you feel that this course of action is, will be beneficial for you and for others, because you know, when we do things that are not beneficial, often it implicates others. It's not just us. The more we can see that, the more careful we'd be. Uh, we're all implicated. We're all interrelated. And so he said, before you act, um, in other words, do the best you can. Now, once you, let's say, it, fine, I think this will be beneficial for myself and others, then you engage in that course of action. While you're carrying it out, stay awake, be mindful. Is it beneficial for you and for others? If it isn't, drop it. Even in the midst of it, you, you realize, I thought this was going to be okay, but it isn't. It's not working out. Drop it. Now, if you find that as you're living out this course of action, uh, and it looks like it's led the, the whatever guided you to it, it led you in a good direction, beneficial direction, one that's not making suffering. Um, when that act is over, then even then, you, your job's not done. Review it. Look back. In the short run and in the long run, was it really good? Did it, was it really beneficial? Sometimes what seems to be, when you look at it, you realize it was foolish, that it was actually unwise and had a very negative effect. It hurt others and it hurt you. If that happens, then what the Buddha recommended to his son, then review that. Try to understand it. Uh, seek out the counsel of, of people who are wiser than you or other wise people and try to understand it and make a resolve to not repeat that again. If it turns out in reviewing it that you find out that what you thought would be good and then as you did it, it turned out it was good and then you even review it afterwards and in fact it was a beneficial action. He said, then take joy in knowing that you've uh, just carried out a good piece of practice. You've done something that's, that's okay. Uh, a quick example comes to mind. I guess this is family week, family day. This has to do with my mother when she was dying. And you might wonder how this fits in, but it does. Uh, towards the end, uh, my mother was close to death. The doctors told us that it was any hour, but she, it went on for much longer. She stayed, and she was really fighting to stay alive. Um, her mind was totally clear, but she was mostly paralyzed, could not speak, could just make little sounds. Uh, it was just torture to watch her because she was so uncomfortable and such pain and so limited and so frightened. Uh, she was 90, but there was still a tenacious holding on uh, to the life force. At any rate, uh, we were with her uh, and finally they reached a point where I dipped into the kind of wisdom that I thought, this is step number one, uh, I reflected, this will be good for my mother. And I gave her very pure Vipassana teachings. Here she is, and she, was, she couldn't speak, but we would hold her hand, take turns, and I was holding her hand. And um, as I started to speak, I was saying things like, Mom, uh, your body has served you well. 
Uh, it served you well for many years, and now it's really worn out. Uh, it's time to go, but it's okay. It's all right. There's just the more I talked about the message of impermanence, the tighter her hand squeezed my hand. Now, he was someone who was supposedly going to die in a second. Her hand was like, I thought I was, she was going to crush my hand. <laughs> Every time I mentioned let go, impermanence, you know, a la Ajahn Chah, uh, my mother just got worse and worse. So in reviewing it, I just saw like, this is wise, but it seems to be not working. So I switched to channel meta and uh, replaced this, in a sense, true but hard teaching that everything that arises passes away, and that includes us, you know. Um, uh, what I instead changed it to, uh, you've been a loving person all your life. Um, we all love you. Many people love you. Uh, you've had a wonderful life of uh, caring and so forth. And her hand uh, loosened up. She didn't squeeze it so tightly. And a little smile came on her face. And uh, someone might say, well, this isn't as high a wisdom. You're just kind of just cheering her up, telling what a great person she is, just fattening up her ego. But it was correct. This was correct, and I knew it. And uh, so I learned something, that even everything is uh, the skill and means, which is so central. That's what the Buddha's talking about. You'll see that, I hope, next time. Um, comes into everything we do. Uh, so that when we encourage you to practice, just a simple suggestion, not easy, but the difference between shamatha, just being one-pointed on the breathing, and choiceless awareness, where you open the field of attention up. And in this retreat, we've given you the ball. The ball is in your court from day one. Usually, we, we do more. We, we tell you what to do, for at least for three days. And then we tell you what to do after that. We didn't do that anymore. It's Kalama Sutta time. <laughs> Whether you like, and some of you don't like it, admit it. <laughs> you want to be told, three days, it's nice and neat and tidy, like a Goenka retreat. Three days of Anapana, you know, seven days of Vipassana, great, it's all spelled out. You can just relax and just do what you do it. But no, they're telling me, you know, it's artful and go back and forth and figure out what's right for you. And it goes from sitting to sitting, maybe breath from breath. But that's, that's really true. It's for you to devise your own practice and to see what is helping you and to use that. And when it's no longer fruitful, to be able to shift out of it easily and gracefully. Okay, why don't we uh, quit here and just have a few moments of silence. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.